Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the courtroom events that we covered this past week, including the conclusion of the defense opening statement and the testimony of the first prosecution witness, Dominic Black. My conversation with Abby is coming up right after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thanks again for joining us. Happy to do so. We began a conversation last time about Mark Richards' opening statement in the trial. Since that conversation, we've aired two more episodes about that opening statement. And in our Monday episode, we focused on... Richard's planting in the jury's mind the idea that Kyle Rittenhouse at numerous points was reasonably in fear of imminent death or great bodily harm. Tell us how effective you think that aspect of Richard's opening statement was. I thought Richard's was very effective in offering the narrative most sympathetic to the defense theory. And he's a good storyteller. He's a good storyteller because He's down to earth and accessible, doesn't sound too lawyerly, doesn't sound too removed. His whole demeanor underscored us that he was one of them, he and the jury. He had a kind of familiar, avuncular way of speaking. And the narrative he offered was told from the perspective of Kyle Rittenhouse and told well. Mark Richards underscored the feeling of chaos and the sounds, which on the audio tape, I wasn't there live and in person, but made very effective use of the sounds that were happening on the street. They were sort of frightening. There was kind of yelling and the sound of commotion. And I thought he did a particularly good job of offering what his expert would say about the time it took for Kyle Rittenhouse to discharge his weapon four times. He made it sound so quick and so kind of instinctive from the perspective of, of Rittenhouse that I, I thought he really effectively neutralized the shot to the back, which is one of the prosecutor's favorite pieces of evidence in this case, I would think. And then Richards continued to dehumanize or objectify 
the members of the crowd and the other complaining witnesses, as Schrader prefers to have them called. So when we hear him talk about the individuals in the crowd beating Kyle Rittenhouse like he was a street animal, when we hear him talk about Anthony Huber attacking him with the skateboard, when we hear him talk about Joseph Rosenbaum lunging for Rittenhouse's weapon, there is very little room to wonder whether they're actually just trying to disarm an active shooter or whether they're actually intending to take the gun in order to kill Rittenhouse. What did you make of that? And what did you make of Bingler's efforts to undermine that? We first asked Ted Mark Richards, he was artful in dehumanizing the crowd, but in the most folksy, avuncular way. There was yellow pants man. There was jump and kick man. I mean, he had sort of cute, but not human nicknames for the various actors in the crowd. And he managed to diffuse the prosecutor's narrative that Mr. Rosenbaum was somebody who'd been recently released from a hospital who had in his possession only one thing, a plastic sack that was tied together with a piece of rope. And you could see through the sack and could easily see that there was no weapon of any kind. Richard's managed to neutralize that. I'm not sure why Binger didn't object to Richard's attempts to speak from the perspective of Mr. Rosenbaum. He would use words like, I I think that Mr. Rosenbaum was trying to get that weapon. He, you know, he had made these threats. You, You can't. That's pure speculation. He can't talk about what's in Rosenbaum's mind, but he did without objection and made Rosenbaum seem like he was the aggressor and that he was somebody to fear, even though he only had this sack of clothes from the hospital. Likewise, with Anthony Huber, who the prosecutor, I think, should have done a much better job in his opening to portray Mr. Huber as a hero, you know, period. Here's a guy on a skateboard. He's not somebody who's engaged in any sort of violent activity. He is not armed with a firearm or any other sort of weapon. He's present and he sees Rittenhouse with a semi-automatic weapon an AR-15 slung over his shoulder, and he sees that he's just shot a guy four times. You know, from Huber's perspective, he was doing what we would want anybody to do in the face of an active shooter, which is disarm the person however you can. And so he he used his skateboard just as a matter of opportunity. He happened to have it. He didn't bring a skateboard to a demonstration as a weapon. That's a sort of absurd notion. And Binger should have anticipated that and diffused that. The other thing that Richards did that I thought was clearly intentional and effective is he never referred to Rittenhouse's weapon as an AR-15 or a semi-automatic weapon. He referred to it as a firearm, which is the most anodyne description and also matches up nicely with the right to bear arms with that word arms. Every once in a while, he called it a gun. But a gun, likewise, is, you know, a relatively neutral way of describing what it was Rittenhouse had. He had a weapon that he was not legally allowed to own because it's an inherently dangerous weapon. It's not a hunting rifle. It's not the kind of weapon you would use for target practice. 
you know, it's a serious weapon that is meant to do serious harm. But by calling it a firearm or a gun, you know, I think he was kind of preaching to the choir of this particular jury. He was trying to normalize it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the next part of our conversation, Abby and I move on to discuss the testimony of Dominic Black, the friend of Kyle Rittenhouse who bought the 17-year-old the semi-automatic rifle that he used to shoot Rosenbaum, Huber, and Grosskreutz. I wonder if you found, as I did, that even though Dominic Black was called by the prosecution, that Again, he served to further humanize Kyle Rittenhouse. And it left me wondering what Binger's intent was in calling him and what his strategy was for the use of Black's testimony. I think Thomas Binger missed a couple of opportunities, both in his opening statement and in the way he presented the prosecution's case. With regard to the opening, he had a story to tell. And he goes first in openings, which is a fabulous opportunity. What most trial lawyers know is there's a theory of primacy and recency, which basically means that people remember what happens first and what happens last, more than the stuff in the middle. And so Binger had an opportunity to really tell a story and grab the hearts and minds of the jury he didn't. I mean, he told the story, but it was very lawyerly and emphasized much more the legal elements of the charges that were brought and was delivered in a kind of detached, scholarly, lawyerly manner. I think he's a very able lawyer, Mr. Binger. I don't mean to be a harsh Monday morning quarterback, but what he didn't do was tell a compelling story from the point of view of somebody in his case. And he could have told the story from the point of view of Joseph Rosenbaum, Anthony Huber, or Gage Grosskreutz, and could have told that compellingly, especially with Anthony Huber, this guy who's just a skateboarder. Like, is there any more innocent, guileless sort of a person that would be in downtown Kenosha, but a guy on a skateboard, not a guy with a firearm, not a guy with a knife, but a guy who happens to be on a skateboard. He didn't bring that skateboard to the demonstration or to the streets of Kenosha with the intention of using it as a weapon. He's a skateboarder. And so Binger could have offered a narrative from his perspective that would have encompassed all three of the victims, it seems to me. And then in the face of a very strong defense opening that used every bell and whistle available to Mark Richards, he didn't diffuse it. He didn't meet that head on in the way he presented his prosecution case. He should have called for the first few witnesses. They should have been people to humanize the victims. He needed some emotion. He needed to kind of offer up some emotion to rebut the emotional appeal in the opening statement by defense counsel. And by calling Dominic Black, it, it was a really odd choice, in my opinion. Dominic 
Black is kind of a surrogate for Kyle Rittenhouse. He's a likable guy. He comes across as down to earth, as perfectly smart, as perfectly thoughtful. He comes across as honest. He doesn't pull any punches about what he did that night and why he went there. He doesn't deny having bought the gun for Rittenhouse. But he says he tried to do it in the safest possible way, telling Rittenhouse that he was going to hang on to the gun for him until Rittenhouse turned 18, that guns were routinely under lock and key in Dominic Black's household. And he sort of seemed like a decent guy who was actually going downtown to Kenosha with the best of intentions to help out. I think that's really interesting, Abby, because the other feeling I think that Binger made in his theory of the case was that he tried to make it so black and white. He tried to make it as if Dominic Black was the responsible party, Kyle Rittenhouse was the irresponsible party. And it was inevitably going to feel all kinds of shades of gray, especially when it's Dominic Black, who was slightly older than Kyle Rittenhouse, and bought the gun for him. And then you turn it around, and and yet it was Dominic Black who stood on the roof, and Kyle Rittenhouse who chose to go in among the crowd. And I just wonder why Binger would think that he could thread the needle of demonizing Kyle Rittenhouse on the one hand, and yet hold Dominic Black up as some kind of paragon of discretion on the other, and then turn around and tell us that it was Dominic Black that bought Kyle Rittenhouse the gun. He wanted it both ways. He wanted Dominic Black to be the bad guy responsible for putting a gun in Kyle Rittenhouse's hands. And yet he also wanted to distinguish the behavior of Dominic Black from that of Kyle Rittenhouse, that Black was cautious, didn't feel compelled to go down into the crowd, had no desire to discharge any weapon, just had the weapon as a preventive measure. He just, he couldn't have it both ways. Dominic Black was too likable. Frankly, I don't think the defense had to ask any questions. The defense could have had no questions because Dominic Black didn't really hurt Kyle Rittenhouse in his testimony. And it would have been silly had it just not been so easy. To the extent Dominic Black said anything that was harmful to the Rittenhouse defense, it was such an easy cross-examination to suggest that Dominic Black was doing what he could to curry favor with the prosecutor because he's charged with a couple of felony offenses. doesn't matter. I mean, Binger tried to take the sting out of the fact that Binger was calling Dominic Black as a witness and Binger charged Dominic Black with a couple of felony offenses, but made no promises. But anybody with any sort of common sense would accept the defense cross-examination that, yeah, well, all right, maybe there are no promises, but you know that the guy who's called you as a witness is the guy who holds the key to your liberty. And so you're going to try to perform in a way that pleases that person. But honestly, I don't think Dominic Black hurt Kyle Rittenhouse. I, I think fundamentally that prosecution theory that Kyle Rittenhouse was the only person who shot anybody that night. Therefore, he's guilty of a couple of homicides and one attempted homicide. That's just not a great theory. He he needed to be much more specific. All right, maybe Kyle Rittenhouse went with good intentions. You know, maybe he and his pals thought they could, you know, be a Boy Scout troop and, and go down there and do the right thing. But he 
then took the law in his own hands. He overreacted. And he overreacted not just because nobody else did, but because he did under the circumstances that, you know, he created his his own demise. But that didn't seem to be the prosecution theory. The prosecution theory was something strange here. Only one guy shot a bunch of people, so he must be guilty. But, you know, guilt is individualized in, in this in in this country, in our adversarial system of criminal justice. And, you know, you can't make your case by generalizing. You have to make your case by proving Kyle Rittenhouse had criminal intent and Kyle Rittenhouse engaged in criminal behavior. Yeah, the prosecution really seemed to miss the proportionality part of its argument. So that's a really good point, because however complicated the Wisconsin jury instruction is on self-defense, and I have to tell you, it's more complicated than many other jurisdictions. The language of interference is, frankly, kind of strange. But what Binger did not hammer home is that Kyle Rittenhouse brought deadly force to bear against a guy who had a plastic bag of clothing in his hands, period. End of story. You know, at most... Joseph Rosenbaum was going to engage in hand-to-hand battle. That's all he had What was his hands. And likewise, Anthony Huber was not armed. He was simply not armed. And, and Mr. Binger needed to talk about what a skateboarder is, that a person travels on a skateboard. There are skateboard competitions. That's who Anthony Huber was. He wasn't a guy who brought any kind of weapon. One of the things that was amazing, Carrie, is the number of people who were armed on the street that day. Yeah. And this is what, you know, this is what some of our legislatures have brought is that people can, you know, these, these, these open carry laws. Yeah, the demonizing of Rittenhouse undermined the opportunity to go after the irresponsibility of Rittenhouse, I think. And, and because when you make it so black and white and so malicious in its intent, then you undermine the incompetence part of any any opportunity to argue that it was just incompetence and disproportionate. And so you also eliminate the possibility of attacking Richard's argument that, you know, the only possibility was that Joseph Rosenbaum was going to get his weapon or Anthony Huber was going to get his weapon and shoot him with it. And it also undermined, I think, the opportunity to go after the fact that you had your weapon tied to you. So, you know, it was going to be very difficult for someone to get that off of you. And so, you know, there were other opportunities that you had besides just shooting. Right. It's interesting. It it might have to do with the conventional psyche of prosecutors to think that there needed to be such a black and white story that that Kyle Rittenhouse needs to be a bad person in order for a jury to find him guilty. He doesn't need to be a bad person. You know, the prosecutor could say, look, you can like him. You can think he's a young guy, only 17 years old, that he was in way over his head. But here's the thing about criminal responsibility. You don't get to shoot a guy who's carrying a bag of clothes. And it is true, and it's a really important point that he and Dominic Black went out and and got slings for those guns so that they would be attached to their bodies so that nobody was taking that weapon off of him. He took it off his own shoulder in, in order to use it, but he could have also 
you know, use the butt of the gun? Did he need to shoot? He could have walked away. He could have used the gun the way Dominic Black suggested he was going to use the gun, was just to ward off danger because nobody wants to come looking for trouble when they see somebody armed with an AR-15. But it's it's sort of too bad because he would have, I think, had more of the jury. It's a funny kind of thing from the defense perspective. I think most defense lawyers know that you can't live in the world of, of black and white in a criminal trial. Now, it could be that all we have to do as defense lawyers is raise a reasonable doubt. And so we don't have the burden that the prosecution has to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. We just have to stir up enough doubt based on reason. So as a criminal defense lawyer, I'm used to, and I tell my students to get used to, not having to paint people as bad. Most defense lawyers don't like to call prosecution witnesses liars, for example, because it kind of puts a burden on the jury to have to decide as a matter of character that somebody's a bad person. We live much more in the land of verbs. The chief prosecution witness or police officers weren't entirely telling the truth is a softer way of calling a person a liar because you don't want to paint fact finders, you know, into a box. And I'm afraid that Binger did that with a 17-year-old kid who didn't have a criminal past. He wasn't going to come across as street smart or a loose cannon even on the stand. And I know we're going to get to his testimony eventually, but I think Binger should have anticipated that there was going to be some sympathy for a 17-year-old kid, maybe especially a 17-year-old white kid. Abby Smith, thank you once again for joining us today. My pleasure. It's a really interesting case. Thanks for inviting me. That concludes this weekly recap episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Please join us next week as we take a look at the testimony of Corey Washington, a social media influencer who witnessed the shootings on August 25th, 2020. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.